I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Before we kick off the show, if you're a fan of History Hack, please do what you can to support the show. We completely get that not everyone is able or willing to dig into their pockets. Times are hard. But by dropping a like, subscribing on Twitter and YouTube, and importantly, leaving a review wherever you get your podcasts, you can help the programme grow and reach more people. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, go to patreon.com forward slash history hack, where you'll find perks from secret Facebook groups to early release material. If you just want to leave us a one-off tip, go to co-fee.com forward slash history hack. The links are in the description. And whatever form your kind support takes, know that we are massively grateful. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. You've got the History Hack sisters here with you today. You've got Beth presenting up front and a lovely Charlie. Charlie, how are you today? I'm very good, thank you. It's nice to be with the Anna to my Elsa again. Yes, indeed, of course. And we really did take the Anna to the Elsa very literally, didn't we, with our, with our appropriate hair colours? But, you know... Absolutely, got to live that life to the full. Um, absolutely. So, Charlie, who have we got with us today? Oh, we've got a real treat for you today. We've got a returning guest today, which we love here at History Hack. We've got Miranda Malins with us. She's a historian specialising in Oliver Cromwell and the Protectorate. Leave gap for booze and hisses. <laughs> a trustee of the Cromwell Association. We've already talked to her about her debut historical novel, The Puritan Princess. And we're thrilled to have her back with us today to tell us about its prequel, The Rebel Daughter. Hello, Miranda. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Beth. Thank you for having me back on the show. Oh, we'd love having you here. And um, we're, we're sorry in advance for all the all the ribbing that you get from <laughs> pair of royalists. It's fine. I love it. Bring it on. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, we know we know that you can take it. We know that the Cromwell Association are just a fantastic group of people and they're doing some really great work and they can always take a joke on Twitter. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so the Puritan Princess was all about Francis Cromwell and anyone who hasn't listened to our chat on that should go back because it it was fantastic and she was the baby of the family the rebel daughter is all about the eldest sister of the family so what do we know about Bridget Cromwell and where do we find her at the start of your story well, we know she was the third um, child of the Cromwell's eventual nine children. Nine. And she's the yes third of nine and the eldest sister. Um, 
So I, it, it's, it's a very different contrasting kind of heroine for me this time from the youngest sister to the oldest sister and the dynamics, family dynamics that come along with that. Um, so she was born in 1624, which means that at the outbreak of the war, she was about 18. And it means it gives her very, very different perspective on her father and on the wars from her younger siblings, because she she witnessed her father's um, kind of lowest ebb in the 1630s, where he lost lots of money and he he was in reduced circumstances as merely a tenant farmer. And then he had a period of depression and a religious conversion, sort of spiritual awakening, and then a piece of good fortune and inheritance, which allowed him to kind of climb back into the ranks of the gentry. Uh, and then the outbreak of the war itself. So she's she sees all of that at first hand and is an adult through the wars, through all of the wars. Um, and indeed, we'll come on to this, but, you know, gets very involved in them herself. So, you know, I, I felt she was a really exciting protagonist um, through which to tell the story of the 1640s, the civil wars and Oliver Cromwell's rise. That's absolutely fantastic. And in in terms of where she is geographically, I we can't go through this conversation without discussing the beautiful city of Ely. Mm. And you can actually see where where Bridget Cromwell grew up in a way. Mm-hmm. You can. It's absolutely amazing. It's spine tingling. Um, it's Cromwell's house in Ely is still there. And if any of you listeners haven't been there, I do urge you to go um, because it, it's it's so uh it's so atmospheric and you see this ordinary, it's a very nice house, quite a large house, but it's an ordinary family house in the centre of Ely, just a stone's throw from the cathedral next to the parish church. And it's where the Cromwells um, were at the outbreak of the war and they lived there for, for quite some time. And you can still wander around it. You can still be in the very ki- kitchen with the same flagstone floors and large fireplace and large windows onto the garden where the Cromwell <clears throat> women in my books, you know, are, are making making the meals and chatting to each other over the washing up. So that's really that's really amazing. And then to reflect that that self-same family who lived in that really quite small house when you think that there are so many children and a, <laughs> a, a spinster aunt as well and a grandmother as well as Oliver Cromwell and his wife. When you think that that self-same family end up in the palaces of Hampton Court and Whitehall living as royalty, that's just such an extraordinary story. Goodness me. I can, I can tell our listeners now that you have done a fantastic job of bringing that location to life because I grew up in Ely and I know Cromwell's house very well. My great grandmother, in fact, used to be the cleaner of the house. (laughs) Not when Cromwell was there, I should say. (laughs) This was many years later. So did she ever see Cromwell's ghost in the house? Oh, now, do you know what? I don't know, but I I would have, oh, that would have been amazing if she had. (laughs) I wonder if she was the kind of woman who would have believed it if she'd seen it. Mm. I I didn't know her very well. She's a she, she'd gone by the time I was I was old enough to talk to her about it. But uh, the the house is just it, it is. You're right. It's it's got a it's got an energy about it, and it's so special and very worth seeing. 
yes it has I absolutely love it I'm doing an event there actually just to plug my event <laughs> in about a month's time on the 22nd of April I'm doing a talk at Cromwell's house a ticketed talk with you know a glass of wine and everything and I'm so excited at the prospect of speaking in that place <laughs> where they all lived it's I, I, I'm going to be beside myself the, the romantic in me is going to just go crazy so very excited about that fantastic we all have those things I don't really like oh that sounds delightful a glass of wine and sitting in the house like we've all got those things haven't we it's like well I'd love to be doing this and this and this place and Charlie with this and so on it's a historian's dream isn't it it is isn't it and I think it's something that all historians or frankly anyone who loves history like your listeners um has in common is that sense of place yeah. You, you you can't you can't love history and, and, and the stories of history without being someone who has that sort of extra antennae that when you walk around places you know you like to think of who lived there before and what the life there was like and you pick up on that that atmosphere um and I love that it's one of my favorite things about working on the past do you touch the walls and the floors and oh I do no I'm a total nut about it um <laughs> I once stayed uh in uh in the it well apparently the hotel room where Charles I had stayed I'm trying to remember I think it was Newark we were talking about Newark earlier um and I I just couldn't go to sleep all night because I was like he he slept <laughs> in this room maybe possibly <laughs> probably and it was just I was just giddy with excitement I'm a real I'm a real uh, little girl when it comes to this that stuff <laughs> You're in good company. <laughs> so a big part of the story of the book is Bridget's relationship and her romance with Henry Ireton. Um, can you just give us a brief rundown of who he is? Where does he fit into the world that is the Cromwell family? Of course. So Henry Ireton is, um, comes from Nottinghamshire and he's the eldest son of a probably a similar family to the Cromwells, kind of minor gentry. Um, his rather like Oliver's own father died young. Um, Henry's Henry Ireton's father died young and left him responsible for his widowed um, mother and all of his siblings. Uh, but actually, it's quite quirky because at that time in Nottinghamshire, they had a system of ultimogeniture, so the opposite of primogeniture, which meant that the youngest son inherited, not the oldest son. So Henry was in a very sort of odd position of being the oldest in his family and feeling responsible for all of his siblings and his mother, but not actually getting the estate at the end of the day. He, <laughs> so he has to really sort of make, make his own way in the world. And he goes to uh, Trinity College, Oxford, and then the Middle Temple and then the Civil War gives him an opportunity to make a name for himself and it, it's something I tried to capture in the book actually about the armies particularly the parliamentarian army is that there were a lot of second sons there were a lot of you know spares mm. rather than the heir who who found fortune and fame and proved themselves in the army because it was it was a very egalitarian um, uh, group of people. It was it was somewhere where it didn't particularly matter actually who you were. It, if you were talented, you could rise up and be recognised. And Henry was very very talented, um, enormously clever, um, and very hard worker. Uh, could be very inflexible and stubborn. Uh, he 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 ends up being the army's best theoretician, best kind of writer of uh, best um, debater and writer of the army's position as the army increasingly gets involved in politics. So he's about 32 at the start of the war, so quite a bit older than Bridget. 
Um, and he comes across Oliver Cromwell uh, through in the early couple of years of the war. They fight together at um, Gainsborough and then sort of become friends. And then Ireton comes back, Henry Ireton comes back to Ely with Oliver <clears throat> when Oliver becomes governor of the Isle of Ely and he makes Henry Ireton his deputy. And that's the beginning really of an enormously close uh, collegiate kind of working, but also very close uh, friendship between the two men. Uh, so yes, when we when the book starts and when we meet Henry, um, he's almost a protege of Bridget's father Oliver, and uh, driving driving the kind of army position forward, and, and in, increasingly as the army um, becomes more radicalized and more ambitious. Oh, amazing. It's actually worth backtracking a little bit from that point, because I think that, you know, in terms of the ways that we reduce the civil war to make it easy to digest, I think everybody just thinks Oliver Cromwell was in charge. So it was King Charles versus mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell and a battle royale to the death. But mm-hmm. Oliver Cromwell is not top dog at the beginning of the Civil War, is he? It's so true, Charlie. It's it's such a great point. And it's one of the major, major myths, one of the the many, many myths (laughs) about the Civil War, which surprisingly few people actually really know, uh, which is that, as you say, you know, at the beginning, right through the first few years of the war, Oliver Cromwell is very, very minor figure. He's a a local cavalry commander, really, in, in Cambridgeshire. And, you know, he, he proves himself on the battlefield and he he shows his ability. But, you know, it's really not until several years into the war that he gets a seat at the kind of central table and eventually becomes a member of the, the Committee of Two Kingdoms, which runs the war, the war effort when, uh, when the Scots join with the English. Um, but it's, it's a really, really interesting point. And it's something I really tried to bring out in the book. Is, is that exact fact that he, he really is on the fringe of all of this and he's frustrated by that because he's effectively a, a, a nobody. And so this idea that the parliamentarian army is led by Cromwell is a total myth. He doesn't in fact become uh, the overall commander of Parliament's army until after the king has died. He did until you know the, the campaigns in the in the third civil war in Scotland. So all of this time he is just one of a number of bright, brilliant men um, who are running this effort and making all these decisions in a collaborative way. And Sir Thomas Fairfax and is the commander later of the new model army, which is the kind of way that the Parliament's army becomes professionalized and becomes uh, this fighting force eventually wins the first civil war and it's thomas fairfax is the commander-in-chief not oliver cromwell gosh and it becomes i mean it the army at this point this is it's so fascinating from a military point of view that it becomes more of a meritocracy as it goes along and you are getting these bright sparks who are becoming advanced but before we can get to that we need to talk about someone who's standing in the way um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which you do very neatly in the book you actually you you make all of this very digestible in a in a family setting tell us about the earl of manchester why did cromwell invite the earl of manchester for dinner <laughs> well thank you for the compliment because it's it, uh, it's a uh, I, I was trying to make it all read quite easily, <laughs> but actually a lot of work goes behind the scenes to, as you say, make this incredibly complicated war with shifting alliances and lots of 
uh, different points of view kind of digestible and not let it get in the way of the plot and keep the family center stage. Um, but yes, the, the Earl of Manchester, um, again, this, is, this comes back to our question of who is Oliver Cromwell during the first civil war. And actually um, the army is run by, uh, commanded by various members of the nobility, the Earl of Essex and uh, the Earl of Manchester and various others. Again, um, just to debunk another myth here, uh, the idea that all, all the nobility are on the royalist side and all the kind of common people are on Parliament side is again a total myth. There are some, there's some really powerful nobles on Parliament side. And as this is the kind of hierarchical society we see in the, in the early modern period, they take the lead, they take command. Um, and uh, they clash, the Earl of Manchester and Oliver Cromwell uh, come across each other before the war they actually because they're both local figures uh, in East Anglia and they actually clash over various local matters to do with the draining of the fens and enclosure and uh, they, they sort of clash with each other over that then they find themselves on the same side in Parliament's war and um, there is this sense increasingly of a divergence in the parliamentarian leadership, parliamentarian army leadership, as the First Civil War goes on, between the noble leaders who, it, who it's felt that they're not actually really trying to win the war outright. They're trying to kind of put up a good show in the field so that they can uh, negotiate with the king, King Charles, from a position of strength. It's quite a sort of civilised attitude. Um, whereas for some of the slightly, the less noble kind of generals and, and army uh, grandees in Parliament's army, like Oliver Cromwell, feel that, you know, they're, they're expending a lot of blood and effort and casualties here in this war, which is getting increasingly violent. And really, why did they go to war in the first place? It wasn't to actually push through to outright victory. The Earl of Manchester is meant to have uh, made this famous remark about um, how, uh, if if the king, you know, if the if if they if the king beats them ninety nine times, no, they, if they beat the king ninety nine times, uh, you know, he's still king. But if he beats them once, they are all hanged and their estates taken away, and that just sums up the incredible bravery of the parliamentarians. That they, they, everything is on the line for them here. They are the rebels here. Um, so there's a there's a clash in the army leadership, especially after the great victory of Marston Moor. There's a sense that this victory is being squandered by this kind of inept leadership who aren't really kind of committed enough to the cause. Um, and so cut along the story short, there's arguments in in the parliament about uh, they pass what's called self-denying ordinance, which is a sneaky way of um, saying that no one who's an MP could or can also be a commander of the army and or an MP or a lord. And so it's meant to oust all of these inconvenient aristos. And then they find some brilliant series of loopholes through which Oliver Cromwell can make can carry on as a army general even though he's an MP on a sort of rolling contract basis I love that <laughs> and, um, and and then they professionalize the army into what is into a, a formidable fighting force called the new model army they appoint a new commander Sir Thomas Fairfax who everyone's happy with and then they storm to victory at Naseby they win the first civil war and then they feel that they they are you know God's instrument for this victory going into the peace negotiations and, and thereafter sorry that's a very long answer <laughs> No, it's a great answer. It's it is it is complicated stuff, and it but it is very very well well done in the book. I like Manchester. I, I find him a fascinating <laughs> a fascinating character. I find Absolutely. anybody 
who was this involved. So um, Manchester, Fairfax, Mm -hmm. who was Mm. this close to general command of the rebel Mm -hmm. forces, who gets away with it, but not only gets away with it, Manchester becomes Lord Chamberlain to Charles II at his restoration. I know, isn't that amazing? It's just amazing. And again, it comes back to a theme that we've discussed before, haven't we, of the extraordinary level of continuity from the 1650s into the restoration. You know, this is a small, you know, this is a small network of of people, men chiefly in this establishment. They all know each other. They're all related to each other. (laughs) They all have to kind of get get civilized life back together after the war. Um, And as you say, you know, Sir Thomas Fairfax ends up being hugely important in bringing, you know, enabling the King's restoration. This is the man who spent all these years fighting, fighting against his father. So, you know, I think it, it was actually, you know, really, this is what's so fascinating about a civil war, is that this is a war within a kingdom, within the same political classes, within the same families, within the same friendship circles, mm-hmm. which is something you don't get from foreign wars, state, state on state wars, where the enemy is just the enemy. Here, the enemy isn't the enemy. The enemy are people that you actually really, really know very well, and in some cases, like and respect. So it's it's very hard. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, just well, that's all very interesting. I've really enjoyed that little <laughs> insight there. But bring it back. We'll bring it back to the book now. Mm. Um, so, Bridget, <laughs> obviously, the main character is Bridget in your book, and her story also really provides insight into women's roles in the Civil War. Um, we mm-hmm. see her working in in the nursing role, but she later joins the, the women that are following the army um, and encounters the military hierarchy that is in place at that time um, due to the pres- being in the presence of Lady Fairfax, and obviously you just mentioned her husband. Mm-hmm. Um, so instead of telling us more about her husband, tell us about Anne, because she is quite the stuff of legend is she not who is oh, she I'd in love, your book I'd love to she's fabulous I, I I just see she's so she's so interesting um and again it was something I really wanted to capture in this book was this sense that there is a powerful network of women here too the 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 wives of the leading army figures on the parliamentarian side are a formidable group of women in their own right and again, all have relationships with each other. Anne Fairfax uh, was known as the generaless, which I love. Again, <laughs> that that, yes. that sense that she's there with her husband, and she that just captures the fact that she was a force to be reckoned with, and the fact that she had a kind of a semi-official, unofficial commanding position, <laughs> which I think is brilliant. Um, <clears throat> and we know that, because, and we know that Bridget was there with her, with the army uh, a lot of the time, because we have letters from Oliver Cromwell to Bridget and others, um, say, and they're addressed to her at General Fairfax's HQ. And they say, give my affection and thanks to the General and the Generaless, who I, oh. you know, I, know, I know you're very close to and who are looking after you. So that dynamic is, I didn't make that up. That is absolutely what was happening. Um, but Anne Fairfax uh, is, uh, but she's attacked as many of these prominent women were in the press in these kind of scandalous uh, newspapers. It was a way as ever throughout history of attacking men was to attack their wives or lovers or mistresses and sort of make the whole thing, you know, sexualized almost. And there was this idea at the time, this fear that if, if the nation could rebel against its king, then were wives going to be rebelling against their husbands in, in parallel? There's a really interesting dynamic. 
Yes, I know. <laughs> but there's such an interesting dynamic there. And, and um, you know, a lot of us who write about this period do so partly because it, it gave wonderful opportunities for women to show strength and leadership, whether it was running their husband's businesses when they went off to fight or as widows or in some cases defending their homes, defending their castles. There were some formidable royalist ladies who were defending their uh, defending their castles and estates. Um, and there were these remarkable women preachers. There were women pamphleteers like John Milburn's wife, Elizabeth. And I was very keen in the book to, to foreground all of these different women and all these different kind of modes of being a woman all these different ways in which a woman at this time could have agency spies there were a lot of female spies working for both particularly for parliament side but for both sides in the war um but coming back to Anne Fairfax yes yeah, she, she 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 became very scandalous when at the trial of Charles I she reputedly sort of heckled from the public gallery um, because her husband was meant to be one of the one of the judges but he he didn't he didn't turn up because he didn't he didn't want to get involved in it and she she heckles um, because she you know disapproves of the regicide so she was clearly a clearly an amazing amazing woman so someone I definitely wanted to include and, and have as a major character in the book. It's really lovely to read because you know as, as someone who who's read a lot of civil war histories it's lovely to see these names Fleetwood Lambert Ayrton <laughs> um all, all of the names but with a female Christian name so you're actually know. about the wives and they have you've given them such agency in mm. discussing what's going on but in a in a female setting it's uh thank you I I, I that was a that really meant a great deal to me in, in the book to do that and I don't think it's too much of a stretch of the imagination either I mean women in this period particularly in these sort of puritanical circles but not too kind of extremely puritanical but sort of you know in this in this in the gentry uh, you know women wives were central to their husbands lives and the puritan attitude to marriage was very much that it was the foundation for a happy and fulfilled emotional life, spiritual life, family life. These aren't the women that we think of as kind of traveling over on the Mayflower with white collars and silent <laughs> until, you know, and silent and in the corner of rooms. Uh, Cromwell himself was surrounded by women his whole life and loved them and always and wrote to them endlessly and always asked their opinion on things, had great female friendships as well. He, he, he's, he's a kind of woman's man, Cromwell. Um, and, you know, he's got so much time for all the women in his life. Mm. Um, and so I didn't feel it was a huge stretch, particularly. And in terms of the, the, the other army leaders' wives, I mean, General um, Lambert, John Lambert's wife, Frances, was apparently uh, uh, enormously impressive and beautiful and erudite. Um, very grand. Uh, there were rumours at the time that she and Oliver Cromwell were having an affair, uh, which I don't think any any historian takes seriously. But again, there's brilliant evidence of how these women are there because they they have to be there because they they otherwise why would the rumour mongers and gossip writers use them in these ways to make these points? Um, so there's a lot of satire happening right now uh, that is based around the wives. Mrs. Cromwell being, you know, from a, a country bumpkin, uh, <laughs> Mrs. Fairfax being wearing the trousers, Mrs. Lambert having an affair with Oliver Cromwell. This is all right there in, in public discourse. So these were clearly formidable, formidable women in their own right. Gosh, amazing. Wow. You, 
if you think Cromwell liked the company of women, you should meet Charles II. Um, (laughs) (laughs) A a very, a very different way of enjoying female company. (laughs) You know, uh, this is, yeah, the the sort of the women in your book this is this is great and it's it's so exciting to hear hear these voices but let's talk about sisters um mm. there's a wonderful simmering rivalry that you explain between bridget and her closest sister in age elizabeth mm-hmm. so do we know anything concrete about how the sisters interacted with each other or or is the the relationship imagined you know to because they even start to represent different political ideologies later in the story were they really so different I mean I I don't have <laughs> sisters myself uh, Beth <laughs> Beth has the experience of sisters um so <laughs> well I, it, is it imagined or is it real do we know it, in which case Beth will understand particularly because I have I'm the youngest of three sisters. Ah, uh, see, so I'm the oldest of three sisters. Ah, there you go. <laughs> I'm hoping you'll identify with Bridget then. So I very much identified with Francis and the Puritan Princess. So I channeled all my young <laughs> younger sister angst through her. And then for Bridget, I had to really put myself in the older sister's shoes and think about how my older sister feels about things, which was quite quite funny, quite a funny exercise. <laughs> but Yes, I mean, I you know, I have to I have to say at the outset. I mean, these these are novels, so a lot of the dynamic between the sisters I I imagined in order to create the kind of compelling plot that would you know keep people keep people reading. I had very much uh, as a tangent. I had in mind uh, the t- the sisters in the Taming of the Shrew. Oh. Um, so the Dashwood sisters from Sense Sensibility <laughs> and various other examples where there's a slightly sort of serious, stern, pragmatic older sister and a younger sister who's incredibly beautiful and everyone loves and, you know, that, that sort of thing. We're even now seeing that in the latest series of Bridgerton. So I, it's clearly a good dynamic <laughs> that everyone's interested in. Um, what we do know is that all of the siblings in the Cromwell family were very close. We have a lot of letters between them which show that. And there was a, they were a very informal family. It's another reason I love them. They all have nicknames for each other and they all gossip and they all, you know, they were really, and again, it takes us back to Cromwell's house in Ely. You've got to imagine them all sharing rooms, sharing beds, you know, it's terribly intimate kind of kind of setup, which again is not the kind of relationship that those who are born royal would necessarily have with each other all around the kitchen table. You know, you didn't have that. They often had um, their own households, didn't they, princes and princesses, um, thinking of Henry, Henry VIII's children or whatever. Um, but in terms of these two girls, um, we have we do have insights into the fact that they are very different personalities. Um, we have various letters from, from Oliver. We have a great letter from him to Bridget, which gives some real insight into their into hers and Betty's personalities. Betty, he talks about as being rather sort of uh, uh, vain and um, interested in worldly things or kind of kind of ca- a carnal mind as he puts it but you have to remember this is <laughs> 17th century language so what what he's getting yeah he, he 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 basically worries that betty is too frivolous and not godly enough and he worries because he's such a doting father he worries that bridget is almost too godly and not doesn't enjoy life enough that's what comes through these letters. So there is a difference between them. And similarly, in their later lives during his rule as Lord Protector, Betty, Elizabeth, is very much the kind of queen bee of the social scene. 
and everyone loves her. She's, she's just kind of adored and she's this princess and everything. And Bridget is much more, hangs back rather more and is, you know, at that point married, you don't want to give away the plot too much, but she's, she's married to another army general and she is very much with the army on that kind of thing. Um, whereas Betty ends up marrying um, a very different man, John Claypole, who's a local kind of family friend, um, was uh, derided by Lucy Hutchinson, the Puritan, as being a kind of real cavalier because he was a kind of, you know, a, a bit like Richard Cromwell. He was a kind of hunting, shooting, fishing, sort of have his dog. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Dogs around him, you know, likes a good time, likes a glass of wine kind of guy. Um, and again, the, this, this, this comes to fruition um, during the kingship crisis in 1657, where the parliament tries to make Cromwell king because... Um, Betty's husband, John Claypole, is one of the leading MPs who's trying to push for Cromwell to accept the crown. And so that kind of moderate civilian wing of the protectorate mm. uh, court, whereas uh, Bridget's husband is very much on the, hates this idea, or persuades Cromwell not to take the crown. He's there with, with Lambert and uh, with Desborough, very much uh, with the army saying, we don't want a monarchy. So it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination, given what we know about the closeness of these couples and of marriages at this time, to think and what we know about Betty and Bridget's personalities, to, to put them on, you know, on those, those different sides of political debates. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mm. Sister, sisterly rivalry is is a topic that <laughs> comes round and round again but it's, it's still because it's so it's ever present isn't it it is so it is so true you know I don't know about about you Miranda but as I said I'm the oldest of three my next sister is two years younger than me but my youngest sister is 12 years younger than me so there's oh, a big age mm-hmm. gap um but you know, as you say, those those dynamics—the older sister, the usually the one who's like it, like the the you just think about like Jane Austen and anything who's like mm. the oldest daughter must marry and must yeah. you know must be the one who's it's that dynamic, isn't it, of the oldest daughter? 
it, it, it speaks it speaks so strongly to me uh, oh, <laughs> and that I find it fascinating too and that intensity of relationship with siblings mm. um you know boys and girls but particularly here I'm writing about sisters where there's such intense love between them but also real rivalry and competition oh, yeah. and that never goes away you always compare yourself to your sisters you don't mean to it's just in your dna that you do that <laughs> i'm the youngest so i always measure myself against my older sisters even as an adult now it's just something it's just a default position yeah. and i very much tried to capture in these two books the fact that again an interesting thing about this this family of nine children six of whom make it into full adulthood is that there are two pairs of sisters who are many, you know, 14, well, many years apart in age. There's two older sisters, Bridget and Betty, and the two younger sisters, Mary and Frances. And the two older girls grow up with their father being, you know, at one time really quite poor, but very much an ordinary person, ordinary man. Um, and they make marriages to sort of local gentry, similar stock and then you have, and then they're adults throughout the war and the regicide, the politics, and they're adults to see their father become head of state. Whereas the two younger girls, uh, they only reach their majority when their when their father is effectively king, and they're living as unmarried princesses at his court. And their marriages are potentially into the highest ranks in the, the nobility, if not, you know, into into kind of European princes. Perhaps even Charles II, it was rumored himself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, what a different experience of family life and what would that do to your, your sisterly relationships? I find that very, very interesting. I love the I love the comparison between Miss Dashwood and, and Marianne. Um, I <laughs> yeah. can totally see that because even a quick Google, if, if anyone wants to Google Elizabeth Claypole, mm. you'll see the most beautiful portrait of Betty which mm. looks like it, it could have hung with the winds of beauty. So, I mean, she Absolutely. is clearly a stunner. Do we have a, do we have a portrait of Bridget? We do. We, we, we do. We have, a, we have a couple of portraits of her, actually. And again, it, it's really, really interesting to see them because um, she, she's, she's less of a stunner than Betty. <laughs> and she's a bit more sort of severe looking. But the thing, again, to counter these myths that we have about this period, she's still dressed in finery. We have a wonderful picture, portrait of her dressed in this beautiful yellow gown, which is the one I describe her getting married in just because it's the one in the portrait. So I wanted to bring that in with pearls and trim and hair and ringlets. So, you know, and she she was thought of at the time by her contemporaries as being this kind of Puritan, godly, godly woman. And yet there she is in this, this beautiful dresses. So, so Anne Fairfax, the same, you know, all of these women they weren't what we think of as Puritan women. When we imagine a Puritan woman, uh, it, it wasn't what these women looked like. These women looked like Charles II's mistresses in yeah. terms of their, their outfits. And again, that just reminds us of the continuity in this period into the Restoration. Um, you know, the 1650s are so often sort of, and 40s, but so often written off as kind of superstitious, backwards kind of dark times and then the, the restoration comes kind of bringing the light and the enlightenment and mm. Samuel Pepys buzzing buzzing around coffee houses and going to the theatre well the first coffee houses are opening in the 1650s and you know Christopher Wren and Samuel Pepys and other restoration figures as begin their careers not only under the protectorate but in Wren's case sponsored by Oliver himself he, he's or he gives Wren one of his first breaks by getting him a chair at, at Gresham College. 
So, you know, we, we, our whole myth of kind of door roundheads, it isn't right. It's not right there. Oliver Cromwell's court was one where there was Mar um, Andrew Marvell, John Milton, um, William Davenant composing the first opera in English is under the protectorate. So they have masks and feasts and parties. You know, it's, it's, we have to rethink this whole period. All the stereotypes that we have are, 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 are quite wrong, really. God, don't listen to her, listeners. <laughs> don't listen to her. I'm spreading Aww. her propaganda. <laughs> oh, I know, but but I, I'm I'm almost saying though, because I love the restoration too. I'm almost saying if you love the restoration, come back to the fifties and you'll find more <laughs> such. You know, you you'll find yourself in more familiar territory than you'd think. Basically, hey, look, so, more seventeenth yeah. century stuff all round. <laughs> exactly. I'm here for it, and it is it is much more colourful and much more complicated than people ever give it credit for. Exactly. Historically, obviously, as you said, it, it is a novel, but what most of what you are writing has got its element in, in fact, you know, they're not made up characters, they are real historical figures. Um, and you talked briefly earlier about the tension that arises between Parliament and the army, and you can't be an MP if you're a general and so on and so forth. Um, throw into the fact that this is a particular problem after the first civil war, but throw into it that the need to negotiate with the king um, and the whole country becomes a melting pot of ideas and ideals and everything looks like it's about to fall off, fall apart. What's going to happen? Um, where does Bridget fit into this, you know, this really quite actually quite, a, it's not a period I know much about, but really quite a, interesting period of time that still has its repercussions today really doesn't it it does it really really does and it's this you said melting pot and that's absolutely right it's this it's this fascinating sort of pandora's box of of intellectual fir firmament i guess is opened by the civil war and suddenly you know the unthinkable has happened uh, you know the, the parliament has gone gone to war with the king and, you know, there's also an explosion in printing because censorship falls away. And suddenly everyone's got their ideas as to what we what they should do next. And as so often in history, even even, you know, in the present day, it's it's always seems so much easier to agree on what you what, what you're against and, and then to pull something down than it is to agree with what you want and to build something up. And, you know, this, this is the sort of mess that they, they get, get into. And the other thing is, I mean, this is an alliance, as we said at the very beginning, this isn't Cromwell versus the king. This isn't even really just parliament versus the king. Within parliament, there are two, broadly two factions, the Presbyterian faction and the independent faction. Um, there's, there's also an increasingly radical and separate army which is its own sort of entity and political force. And then you also have the Scots, who are an allied sort of sep totally separate nation, really, although they share the same king. They are a separate nation who, are, who side first with Parliament and then later with the king. So all of these different sides have different views. And then within the army itself, you have the army, you have the army um, commanders who might think one thing and the rank and file who think another. And they're also influenced by radical sects, particularly the levellers who come from London, who have their own sort of political ideals that 
are familiar to us later down the, the centuries as a sort of chartist ideas and ideas of kind of, you know, uh, broadening the franchise. And this is what they're discussing at the famous Putney debates. So as you say, it, it's, a, it's a huge sort of spectrum of interest groups here, um, all also reacting constantly to changing events. So the, the landscape around them is constantly shifting, not least the king and what the king is doing and who the king is playing off against who and what terms he will or won't accept. Pretty much everyone at this time still wants to keep the king, still wants to keep a monarchy. Um, but increasingly, as the years go on, especially once there's a second and even more brutal civil war, um, <coughs> there are more calls for um, to, to try and put on trial um, Charles I and possibly abolish, even abolish the monarchy. So there is a kind of increasing radicalization that happens. And in terms of where Bridget is, I mean, I just see her very much at Henry Ireton's elbow, her husband, who she was such, they were such a clearly a very, um, uh, a very close kind of intellectual pairing, I think. And I found it so intriguing to think that she was the daughter of Oliver Cromwell and she was married to Henry Ireton. And increasingly during uh, the revolution that ends up with Pride's purge of parliament and then the trial and execution of the king, Cromwell and Ireton are the kind of twin leading figures of this movement. And Bridget is the daughter of one and the wife of the other. So, and living with them. So, I mean, how could she not be in the thick in the thick of that, um, especially as she's outspoken. We know she was outspoken and, and religious and strong-willed. Um, so yeah, I, I guess where she ends up with Henry Ireton is Henry Ireton comes around to the uh, idea that really the king um, has gone too far in his double dealing and cannot be uh, kept on his throne. He, I think he probably comes to that realisation sooner than Oliver Cromwell. Oliver's working later uh, to try and keep the king a part of the picture. Um, whereas Henry Ireton, because he's such a thinker, he's a real political theorist in a way in which Oliver Cromwell just isn't. <laughs> he's not a man of, you know, he's, he's famously, you know, re reads men, not books. Whereas Ireton is a real kind of firebrand thinker. And it, it's, it's Henry Ireton who starts to put the up, condense the ideas of both the levellers and also the kind of army and put them into kind of political terms and, and drafts a lot of these documents, the heads of proposals the, that they give to the king, uh, the remonstrance, which is the eventual army document that calls for the king's trial. And Ireton, historians are increasingly thinking that Ireton is the main writer of some of these documents. There was question, more question before whether it was more of a kind of group of, of writers, but Ireton is increasingly being given credit as the main writer. Um, so he, he is trying to map out a kind of political future and an idea of, you know, do we get rid of Parliament, uh, dissolve Parliament potentially, and, you know, try the king and then come up with a, with a new method of, method of government. Um, so I think I, I, I picture Biddy, Bridget is there, you know, passing him his inkwell, letting him read his drafts out loud to her and very much there with him. It's a real sort of exercise in soft power. <laughs> yeah. What she what she has is because she is literally at the table, at the dinner table in their family home with her husband and her father, which mm -hmm. is not an unusual thing for, for a woman to be. And 
bouncing ideas off the two of them and pushing them one way, pulling them the other. And she really is a, a force to be reckoned with. Absolutely. And, and again, that, as you say, that dynamic is not uncommon um, for a kind of woman to marry her father's sort of protege or deputy or colleague. You know, that's quite a common story, in, in, you know, especially in the past. And again, that just made me think if, if, if Bridget is there with her father and her husband, how is she sort of trying to link the two? Is she trying to explain to her husband, you know, the best ways to convince her father of something because she knows her father inside out and vice versa? Is she a go-between? And um, again, we have a wonderful letter, one of the letters we have from Cromwell to Bridget when she's away with the army in 1646. He writes it to her and he says, um, I write, I'm writing to basically, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, I'm writing to you, not your husband, because one line of me to him um, makes him stay up all night writing and <laughs> to me. And he works too hard, so I'm writing to you instead. But that just tells me that she's there. He's expecting her to pass on her these her, his thoughts to her husband. So you know, she's, she's in the conversation. This is the point at which this, this episode could be four hours long. (laughs) Of course, I'm very, very tempted to sit and talk to you all night um, (laughs) about the political wranglings that came after the King's execution. And yeah, it's, it's so pertinent and I'm going to say it, I'm going to mention it because we've, we've had a plague and a war since (laughs) then, but it is very, very like what we've lived through with Brexit in mm, that a decision was made and the the actual unpicking and the, the legal wranglings that have to happen in order for that then to be carried through is that's a much bigger question. So they suddenly realise we're going to cut the king's head off. Mm. What will be the first words that come out of people's mouths when you kill a king? Yeah. <laughs> you know what what, what do we do next yeah no, exactly the king's dead long live the king uh, which is why they hastily abolished the monarchy because they realized actually charles ii because say he's king so we need to abolish the whole thing but you're so right and i i found it really extraordinary living through the brexit period because it felt so resonant for this period i mean i wrote a piece in history today about this actually about the that very resonance and that very idea that you know the referendum was a kind of big you know a very simple decision in some ways and then what do you what do you do afterwards that's the complicated stuff and that's the fascinating stuff really what do we want instead we know we don't want what do we want next (laughs) and lots of historians at the time I remember Neil Ferguson saying that uh, it it was he said something like that this was a splendidly Stuart style um, uh, crisis or, or whatever and a lot you know a lot of us historians did feel that that amazing kind of suddenly the the past and especially our period just leapt forward into the future and suddenly the newspapers and the radio and was full of words like royal prerogative and prorogation of parliament <laughs> and the speaker and what are the speaker's rights and speaker lengthful was being you know cited and, and and you just say oh wow it's all come back to life again i i love that <laughs> someone referred to the grandees in parliament and i think every 17th century historian <laughs> just did a little squee grandees what a great what a great word exactly (laughs) I mean all of these terms if you're someone who's lucky enough to to work in this period or read about it or enjoy it you know it it is 
it has its own language and its own terminology, doesn't it? And, you know, this is why I love this period, the 17th century, the mid 17th century, is because it's the first time really where, where the fighting isn't about who should, you know, who should rule it Game of Thrones style. It's about how they should rule. And it's the beginning of everything. It's the beginning of journalism. It's the beginning of kind of uh, the ideas of popular sovereignty, the beginning of the ideas of limited monarchy, all, all of the things that we now take for granted. And the arguments that we have now, the debates we have now about, for instance, uh, what the balance should be between the protection that the state offers us and the freedoms that we enjoy from you know, apart from the state, that sort of, that all comes from Thomas Hobbes and, and John Locke. And, you know, these are the same arguments we're having today. And I love that. That's what's so brilliant about studying the past is that it's illuminating of the present. Mm, absolutely. And so how do those, you know, these, as you say, these political events that we are now seeing in our, our time, obviously, how do they relate to Bridget specifically, you know, this new, well, what do you do once you've abolished a monarchy who as you say how do you how do you rule um what do we know about her life in in the commonwealth and, and the protectorate yeah well we we know that she uh went to ireland with her husband henry Ireton when he was governing when he was out there um in charge of the army basically um and we know that she she later went back to ireland with with her second husband i won't go too much into the plot for <laughs> for uh, but you know the movements that i have her making in the book are, are real she was in ireland when she when i say she was and she's back that she then comes back in in 1655 and her husband then is one of cromwell's major generals so the experiment of kind of regional military leadership which goes so badly wrong it's a terrible idea <laughs> and uh, so her husband is one of those major generals <coughs> ruling a great swathe of swathe of England um, and she doesn't live it's quite interesting to me she's the only Cromwell uh, child sibling who doesn't live in the royal palaces she lives just outside on Whitehall in Wallingford House with her husband which um, later becomes famous as a sort of uh, a conspiratorial HQ for for members army grandees, as we say, <laughs> um, to plot against the protectorate. Um, and, and again, I mean, this is it, it's such an enormous. I find it so sort of sad and poignant. All this, and I I I, I go into it in much more detail in the Puritan Princess because that's set in the 1650s. That really the protectorate and then later sort of the whole Commonwealth experiment is brought down in this most stupendous own goal, I think, in, in all of British history, because <laughs> the army leaders kind of scupper it, scupper it, scupper themselves. And, you know, if, if you'd said to them, and I again, I try and have my characters having these conversations, you know, if we do pull down the protectorate, you know, aren't we just opening the door for the king to come back, which, of course, you know, 18 months later, whatever he does. Um, so again, I, I see Bridget in this period, you know, we, we know that she's there, we know that she is kind of on the army's side of these increasingly kind of divergent views under of, of what Oliver Cromwell's protectorate should become, whether it should be a kind of military regime, or whether it should become more of a softer uh, traditional monarchy. Uh, she's on the kind of military side of that. Um, and so, you know, I, I I sort of imagined the rest, I guess, in terms of how that dynamic would play out 
for her. I mean, she would have very much been torn between her husband's attitudes and decisions, some of them terrible, some of them disastrous, and her her birth family, who he found himself kind of in um, in conflict with. And again, it's the brilliant thing about the particularly the parliamentarian side in the Civil War and Interregnum is all the falling out among thieves, you know, all the fighting <laughs> between them. Because, I mean, that's just fascinating, isn't it? And it's all at the end of the day, it's all a family affair. The, the protectorate is brought down by the, the new law protector, Richard Cromwell, who's Oliver Cromwell's son, it's brought down by his brother-in-law and his uncle. Uh, so, you know, if you like your kind of Tudor and Stuart dynastic feuds and stuff, you'll love this period because it, it all comes down to family, which I love. Exactly. So if you like EastEnders, you're going to love it. Absolutely. You're going to love, love it. it. Yep. They, they, <laughs> it does. It eats itself. Is, is <laughs> it how, does. how I've always described it. It just it does. Um, women's voices are hard to find in history. Um, so much of it being written and recorded by men and men's perspective of those women so you know we've, we've talked about how the pamphleteers went after mm. after these um these women how did you find Bridget's voice um and how much of your story is her and how much of it is opinion that you're prepared to back up with with your evidence <laughs> yeah yeah no it's a it's a great question um I had to just as you say I had to work a lot harder to find Bridget's voice than I did, for instance, to find Oliver Cromwell's voice. I find, I find writing kind of dialogue for Oliver Cromwell it, it just, just a piece of cake because his voice is so clear in my head from all my years of studying him. Um, he, he's just such a vivid, uh, you know, he's such a vivid voice. But for, for, the, for the women, you know, they are so marginalized, as you say, in the sources. We just have these glimpses of them, you know, a letter here, uh, a, 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 you know, a, a diary entry there, you know, as you say, a sort of uh, scandalous pamphlet here, a bit of gossip there, a portrait. Mm. It's, mu it's, you have, it's much more of an exercise of reading between the lines. And this is where the fictionalizing does come in. I mean, I did, I, I was a historian, I am a historian before I was a novelist. And, you know, I did think about writing a book about the women in Cromwell's family, just from a straight history, nonfiction point of view. But I, I just felt that I would constantly be frustrated. I'd constantly be having to write, you know, well, uh, I assume, you know, Mrs. Cromwell <laughs> would have felt this or would have felt that or would have done this or would have done that, which I just thought would be so sort of would end up annoying the reader. <laughs> so I thought, actually, if I write, if I fictionalise them, I can imagine their voices, reinsert them back in the story, but try and make sure wherever possible to keep to the facts in terms of who, who they were in broad brushstrokes, what they were doing, you know, who they were marrying, where they were, you know, so, so that we can kind of rediscover them uh, as part of this story to which they were central. Um, but yeah, I mean, I had to, I had to imagine Bridget's voice in, in many ways. I have a few of, we have a few of her letters uh, and as I say, portraits. Um, and I, I, again, also I wanted with her to reflect her um, strong faith. I wanted to have more kind of biblical um, references and thoughts of hers reaching for Bible precedents in a way in which Francis, the heroine of the Puritan princess, doesn't do that so much. She's, she, uh, she and her younger sisters <clears throat> were much more sort of 
Anglican, really. Bridget was known to be the most puritanical of, of these sisters. So I wanted kind of God to be part in the mix here. But again, that's a balancing act because you, you don't want to alienate your modern readers by making it all too <laughs> hot and heavy and biblical. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that was, that was a, there was a balancing act there. But, um, you know, it, the wonderful thing about writing about the Cromwell family is that I, I do find that they do come to me. It's not like purely inventing characters you know I, I've written some fiction before where I've totally made up the characters and that is a very different experience with that you feel you are you know you are god you are totally picking and choosing exactly <laughs> who they are to suit your story or to suit the points you want to make whereas with this it's it's more nuanced it's more of a delicate process you're taking what you know and then trying to sort of build out around that in a compelling in a compelling way but you know once once I started writing about Bridget you know she she actually came to life for me and then as the book went on I found that I I could hear what she would have said or what she would have thought or what she would have been worried about so hopefully that comes through in the book <laughs> it does and you're allowed to have an opinion mm-hmm. oh yeah as well you're allowed to if if this had been a straight biography mm-hmm. you you couldn't have had the you know, her her perspective on all the people that she interacts with. No, exactly, and, and you know, I, again, I thought very carefully about that because in both books, it's a daughter's perspective on Oliver Cromwell, which gives me the liberty to be quite opinionated about him because I'm writing about him as how his children would have. Might may have seen him, um, but again, I you you're, you're like this, Charlie. But I did try. Hopefully, you notice that I was a bit tougher on Cromwell in this book than I was in the Puritan Princess. I, uh, I did, you know, because obviously you've got to confront the horrors of Ireland, the the um divi- the divisions within within the parliamentarian kind of family, and and Bridget has real concerns about her father becoming head of state and what that you know what that would would mean and would he make the right decisions and everything. And I, I, I wanted in the Puritan Princess because we're at hit, at the point later in the story where he's um, effectively king, he's Lord Protector. I deliberately tried to keep him a little bit at a distance in the scenes he's often across the room or he's being talked about. Whereas I tried to make Oliver Cromwell in this book, which is set ten years earlier when he's much more of an ordinary householder and husband and father. I really tried to make him earthy and right there and very intimate. And like he, the, the book opens with him just literally working in the fields. <laughs> and I really wanted the readers to to com- contrast that Cromwell um, with the Cromwell who's sitting on a throne, you know, 10, 10 15 years later and think, hang on, how, how, how did that guy become this guy? <laughs> and, you know, looking at him through his daughters was a really, really great way into that, into telling that story and telling their stories too. Yeah. Well, I know you and Charlie and to myself now, I feel like I could try and <laughs> contribute every so often, but we could go on all night. And this certainly is one of our podcasts where we could go on and on and on. And these are a joy to be on. So um, Miranda, where can people get your book? Is it out for sale now? 
It is. It's out. Oh, thank you. Yeah, the Rebel Daughter, published by Orion. It is um, out for sale now in all good bookshops and <clears throat> online retailers, <laughs> uh, and uh, you can get it as a paperback or as an ebook or on Audible. It's an audio book as well. So um, yeah, do do please grab a copy and grab a copy of the Puritan Princess as well. And uh, you can read them in either order. They're sort of standalone. If you've not read if you've not read either of them yet, actually, you know, you may as well start with with this second one because it it takes place earlier it's a bit confusing um but equally if you've read the puritan princess already um you know the rebel daughter will will uh, appeal to you because that you you get a sense of time unspooling backwards and working mm. out origin stories which i i quite like as a historian so do please uh, grab a copy and, and enjoy let me know what you think on uh, on social media or or anywhere else and that will also be on i imagine on the history hack bookshop as well if people want to go through history hack as well because they do get a small percentage of the proceedings mm-hmm. and help us keep going and getting all these wonderful Excellent. guests both are highly recommended yeah thank you glowing recommendation there from charlie i think anything that anytime that charlie says anything good about books you should just <laughs> oh, <laughs> i know and especially as charlie is such an ardent royalist i mean it really it, <laughs> if, if she 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 is exactly the person i'm trying to win over with my books <laughs> hey, i mean you've taken some liberties with the fiction making oliver cromwell likable <laughs> you know, how, how dare i how dare i <laughs> check it out guys you'll love it Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.